Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium, with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscriber, Michelle, for his support and all my other Patreon subscribers for their continued support. This podcast would struggle to continue without them, and my Patreon page has become a great place to learn about and to chat about all aspects of conducting. There'll be more about my Patreon page later on in this episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with an American conductor, who started out conducting marching bands and wind bands, but has gone on to have a flourishing orchestral and operatic career, being especially well known for conducting contemporary music with groups such as Ensemble 1010 in the United Kingdom. He's also very well known for his association with the Royal Northern College of Music, where he has been teaching conducting for many years. It's a great pleasure to welcome Clark Rundell. Clark, it is wonderful to see you today and to speak with you. A name that I've known of for a long time as somebody who's into both um, contemporary music around the Northwest and also teaching of conducting. How are you? I'm really, really well, Michael. It's it's great to actually talk to you and to meet you as well. I don't think we've never met in person, have we? I don't think we have. No, no. I don't think we have. No. no. So this is, this is doubly nice. Yeah, I've known your name for years and years and years. Um. I always go right back to the beginning. And for you, the beginning was in the United States, Minnesota, I believe. Um, did you have musical parents? How did music first wander into your life? Music was always a big part of my life. Uh, so Bloomington, Minnesota is where I'm from. Um, suburb of Minneapolis, very what you would call typical middle class America, not super posh, not super poor, just straight down the middle. Mm. Um, it had... At the time, and so I was a, a, a child, I'm a child of the early 60s, so I was going to school in the in the 60s and 70s there. It had a, an, a fantastic new world vibe in that mm. everybody wanted the world to be better for their children than it was for them. And so we had new schools. And, and so my mother was a piano teacher, but of little kids. So mm. there was always music in the house. My mother would say that she would have to leave me in my bedroom when I was like two or two and a half. And we had a little record player that used to play 45s, yeah. indestructible kiddie record player. She said I could work that by the time I was two and a half and put <laughs> on whatever whatever music I wanted to listen to. And, and I learned the piano with her. Uh, and then what was really extraordinary about my childhood in Bloomington was music was a huge part of the prescribed curriculum of mm -hmm. the of the children there. So every single child in Bloomington, Minnesota, had to learn an instrument uh, for two years from when they were 10. Wow. Every single kid was re required to learn an instrument for two years from when they were 10 years old. And when then when they, if they chose not to carry on with the orchestra or the wind band, it was big wind band country. And mm -hmm. wind band was, is a big part of my, of my life, you know, really still a little bit, but certainly was in, until my late 30s and 40s. And... And if, if you gave up your instrument after two years, you then were required to be in a choir. Right. But the result of this was, Michael, that my high school marching band, you know, some of your listeners will have kids or of an age where a, a movie like High School Musical would actually mean something to them. My high school was just like that. Wow. So my high school had, my high school marching band had 244 members in it. We had eight tubas, 20 trombones, God knows how many flutes, oboes who played a glockenspiel. And so music was huge. And every August, you could hear the drum, the drummers of the marching band practicing every single night, you know, would just resonate through the town. It was great. And, and that 
I don't know if that's still the the policy of the school district. I kind of doubt it, but but I think the wind band at the school is still really very very strong, and mm. and that's great. You know, it's great if you're around, you're in an environment where playing in music, playing music is really cool, mm. and it was. I mean, as a musician, I think that must have been a sort of heavenly place, Nirvana, to grow up. But it, you know. Even for those who, who dropped it and then went into the choir or whatever else, surely later on in their life they realise how important that decision was for for Bloomington to make that for the for kids. But you know, working in a team, um, the discipline of you know playing scales or, or or learning to march in a marching band or whatever, all of these things are life skills that are transferable later on. And it's something I say to youth uh, the youth orchestras, but also the student orchestras at Conservatoire now. You know. Even if you don't want to play in orchestras and you hate playing in orchestras, but these things are all transferable. They're all skills that you can take into any walk of life. And it's an important. I remember when I when I did my my one and only degree, my bachelor's degree in music education at North Northwestern in Chicago. Um, that was something that they always stressed. You need to remind your administrators, your mayor of your town, about the transferable schools skills rather about skills. That, that young people learn by being in a group. All those ones you just listed, discipline, teamwork, listening. And, and you know, yes, not a lot of members of that 244-piece marching band probably made their living in music, but they love music and they love listening to it. And they're often just quite good citizens, you know, mm. and good workers in, in whatever field they're working from, IBM to medicine to whatever. So it, well, was, it, was, it was great. It's, it's a question I've asked now two weeks running to the Rest is Politics podcast um, yeah, with Alistair yeah. Campbell and Rory Stewart because I feel that in the last 12 years, music has died in this country where we both live now. You know, uh, it's it's being killed uh, through not, not appearing enough, if at all, in education. And so I'm going to keep banging on about it because I think it's important. Um, I, read... I, 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 I couldn't agree more, by the way. I mean, my, Good. my, my late wife was the... the the head of music at Manchester High School for Girls. And and it's just, that was a fantastic and still is a fantastic thriving music department, but it should be more than the fee-paying schools that have mm. vibrant music departments. And and the way that the um, the A-levels and GCSEs are now cons constituted just con conspires to marginalize the arts in general, not just mm. music. And, mm. and, and I mean, I think that just sucks. It's yeah, awful. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I read that when you went to Northwestern University, you studied two things. You studied trombone, but you also studied conducting with somebody called John Painter. Now, when I encounter a conducting teacher's name I don't know, I always ask the same question. Were, was John Painter a, a Moosin-esque stick technique uh, and less score study? Or was he a Swarovski all-score study and hardly any stick technique? Or somewhere in the middle, which maybe you are as a teacher at the Royal Northern College. Um, what was John Painter's uh, modus operandi for teaching conducting? Well, it was it was a sort of again such an interesting thing. So, so if you do a music education degree um, in a place like Northwestern, you are required to take conducting as an option. I, I knew that mm -hmm. I wanted to be a conductor. I, I mean, my trombone teacher was a wonderful man and, a, and an amazing. Uh, teacher a guy some of your people who are trombonist uh, listeners would know the name frank chrysofoli who was a uh, principal trombone of the chicago symphony orchestra during the fritz reiner years 
and mm. fascinating and fascinating to talk to him about playing for Hindemith and Stravinsky and yeah. and so I learned a lot I learned an immense amount from from Frank about conducting actually sort sort of funny a side story about that one when, when I got the scholarship to come to England I then visited them Chicago Symphony Orchestra were playing at the prom so I went and took him out yeah. for lunch one day and and he said what are you doing now dear boy he was well into his 70s at the time what are you doing now dear boy well you know Frank I'm 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 studying conducting now and he looked at me only half choking, he said, I spent all that time with you for you to become one of them. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> That's beautiful. But anyway, so so the way if if you've ever interviewed my colleague Mark Heron, the 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 and you'll know a little bit, as many people will, his incredible project called Conduct It, in which he puts online resources for people to learn conducting. The fun the foundation of that was the curriculum that I was benefited from at Northwestern, where almost everybody studied conducting. So you're in classes of eight or 10, John Painter would sort of supervise it. And one and the beginning conducting class was literally had 12 people taking turns playing off four, three line scores, um, you know, with their own instruments so that you learned conducting immediately from conducting real people. Mm, and it mm. wasn't ever two pianos. You were conducting, you know, the opening of, of the Eroica or the opening of, of uh, you know, all sorts of things, very standard repertoire, Romeo and Juliet Overture of Tchaikovsky. Um, you would conduct that with your your colleagues playing it in a, in a group of about 10 or 12. Mm. Uh, a formula which I thought worked brilliantly. I brought over to Manchester lots of the... That was part of my early life at the Royal Northern, teaching the undergraduates that course, which still operates incredibly successfully and is still extremely popular. And so I graduated from that course, which I must have done in my second or third year. It's a four-year undergraduate course in Chicago. And and then I opted into the other um, conducting classes where I actually learned from John. And John John was he was a, he was a brilliant man, and not to be confused with the John Painter of York University. Mm. And they had they were roughly the same age, names spelled exactly the same, and they both have little stories about being wrongly booked. <laughs> 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 you know, he was he was a, a very important wind band conductor. He was a terrific musician, had a great ear, um, very simple, extremely effective technique, yeah. and I would say he was. He was a mix of the two in answer to your question. He, you would be conducting along and he would say, sing the second bassoon part, mm. you know, and he would make sure that you were getting into the, into the undergrowth of the piece uh, in a very detailed way. He also, I took some orchestration and arranging classes from him at which he was absolutely brilliant. And that we'll probably talk about later in the interview has become an incredibly important part of my life. And I was in grateful for that because it's so good for my ear mm. to really think about if you're if you're actually having to put pen to paper yourself a bit i think it helps your your appreciation of other people's notes mm. so so that was the way that was taught it was very practical but very sort of simple technique based it wasn't full of analysis your analysis was done in other courses you know, you had your music theory and your the the course was rigorous, very academic. Um, but I kind of loved that actually. We had a, we had a, I remember we had a brilliant guy who who was one of the first people to realize the serial techniques of Lamarteau, but he also wrote big band arrangements. 
<laughs> it was, you know, you were just, I was having a lot of fun expanding on all fronts. And I also learned at Northwestern an immense amount from being in a, in a chapel choir, a non-denominational chapel choir, which was extremely good. Cynthia Heyman and Nancy Gustafson were in that choir when I was in it. And, and the guy who ran that wonderful man called Greg Fountain, no longer with us either, was Robert Shaw's uh, number two for a long time. Mm. He would just say, anybody who wants to hang around after rehearsal can hang around after rehearsal and we'll conduct. And he taught me so much about color, color in a Bruckner mass or mm. John, the, the wind and wind breath percussion suits at Northwestern were extremely good. And sometimes it all happened a bit too fast for me. I was not the best bonus there because many of the best bonus in the world were there. Mm. And I, and so the sound of rehearsals, I was just kind of hanging on to. But in the choir, I could really, he would allow us to conduct it. We would do huge works. Schoenberg, Frieda Alfred, and incredible achievements. It was great. I learned an immense amount from him, I really did. You've mentioned it already when you were talking about taking the trombones of the Chicago Symphony out for lunch that you then jumped over the pond and came to Manchester and you got a scholarship to study. You got a junior fellowship, Scott, um, a junior fellowship scholarship at the Royal Northern College of Music, studying with Tim Rennish. Now, why did you want to make that jump across? Um, and why the Royal Northern and not the Royal Academy or the Guildhall or the, wherever at the time? Um, why Tim Rennish and why Manchester? There's a sort of longish story to this, and I think it's important to give credit to the people for, for who are in this story, because, Michael, it was a complete and utter fluke. <laughs> I mean, I, I, to say it was a fluke and to also say that, you know, I, I, I'm not the person with the most immense talent and many, many of the my colleagues at Northwestern could have, could have done what I've done and done a lot better. But so the situation was this. In 1981... There's an organization called the College Band Directors National Association, a wind band association in, in the United States. And the president of that that year was a gentleman called Frank Battisti, who is a well-known wind band man, still alive in his 90s. Um, and and he, was, he taught at Ithaca, and he then really became most prominent when he taught at New England Conservatory. Commissioned everyone from Gunther Schuller downwards. I mean, he was an incredibly important figure. So he decided in 1981 that this organization, and you, I can't imagine you've, you've interviewed that many American college band directors, but there are tens of thousands of them. You know, there are so many, many, many thousands of people who make their living conducting college wind bands in the States. It's, it's unbelievable. Mm. So this organization will have several thousand members um, and some international, but really not very many. So he decided that, that it should become international um, and that they should have an international conference. So they looked at the Barbican because they're all they needed somewhere that it was English speaking, and the Barbican was super expensive. And somebody told them, "There's a new college of music in Manchester. Why don't you go up and look at that?" Mm -hmm. So this must have been 1979, 1980. They were looking, so they decided to book the Royal London College of Music for the summer of 1981. At the time, Tim Rennish had nothing to do with wind bands. The head of wind percussion faculty was the great Philip Jones, mm -hmm. uh, and. And the wind band was run by a gentleman called Trevor Y, who's best known as a, as a flute pedagogue. 
but Tim, because he he was involved in the wind and percussion department, actually, I think he might have just taken over from Philip at that stage, felt that he should turn up to this conference just to see what it's all about. And that really changed his life and the life of many other people. The late Trevor Green, who just passed away a couple of months ago, also was part of. So at this event at the RNCM in Manchester in July of 81, were founded two organizations, one called WASB, the World Association of Symphonic Bands, and BASBUI, which somebody might have, you might have heard of, a lot of the British wind players would have heard of it, British Association of Wind Bands, was, were both founded in that year. And Tim then got himself a scholarship. Tim just couldn't believe it, that University of Michigan, Eastman, New England Conservatory came over playing this incredibly sophisticated music unbelievably well. Mm. And he just said, I need to find out about this. And that whole renaissance of British wind music uh, that happened from 1981 onwards is a, was a result of that decision by Frank to have that at the RNCM and for Tim to just grab hold of it with his incredible vision and force of personality. And so he got a scholarship from the Churchill Foundation, he and five other people, to research wind band training in the United States uh, at various levels, summer camps, high school marching bands like mine, and, and Tim's was university. So he went to uh, Eastman in New England and Michigan, a lot of the most famous places. And he spent a week at Northwestern. And I was the drum major of Northern, Northwestern University Marching Band, whoop, whoop, mm -hmm. which was I'm <laughs> incredibly proud of it, which I absolutely loved. I had a blast. And, and, uh, but that meant I was really behind with my studies in the autumn because it was quite all encompassing. I paid a lot of money for it, by the way, mm. uh, to be the drum major. So, I, and I had keys. Uh, American universities have a lot of work-study things, and, and students are given an immense amount of responsibility. So I had keys to the entire library. And Tim, who I don't know how well you know him, never, never sleeps during conventional hours at the best of times. And I was happy to stay up till one or two in the morning. He would just stay, find scores, listen to reel-to-reel -reel recordings, make photocopies, and we got along like a house on fire. So I was looking... I'd been accepted at a master's degree to stay at Northwestern, actually. And he wrote to me and said, and I, or maybe I wrote to him for advice. I said, look, my foreign languages, typical of an American, are, are not great. The only places I've ever heard of were Oxford, Cambridge. Where do mm. you think I should go? And he wrote back and said, well, you know, Oxford and Cambridge are great places to go, but why don't you come to Manchester? Because that's where wind bands are happening at the moment. And I know that's what you're into. And you'll know you've interviewed a few people who were junior fellows at the RNCM and you'll know how competitive that is to get into now. At the time, it was brand new. I think they had six applicants. Tim didn't really like the look of any of them. Having seen <laughs> me do nothing but buy him coffee and open doors to libraries, he offered me the junior fellowship. Brilliant. And crazy. I mean, I'd, 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 to talk about undeserving is absolutely true. So I arrived in Manchester in September of 84. Um, he was going full speed ahead with his wind chamber music and with wind bands. And he would, he would literally just give me a score and say, Clark, conduct this. You know, no, I mean, 20 minutes before, because Tim, if you know anything about Tim, is usually double booked. So he would just say, <laughs> I need somebody to do, I need somebody to do a wind section for the Bartok Concerto for Orchestra. Here it is. And luckily I can learn music pretty fast. That's been a, that's been a, something that's been handy for me in, in my life. And I assumed it was a one-year position. He said, actually, Clark, you're doing okay. It's a two-year position. And then they offered me a job to stay and, and, and to be head of jazz and to help Tim just 
put the wind band on the map, which I was, you know, just, wow, I couldn't believe it. You know, mm. here I had a job and it was great. And I'm working with good players. Tim was always incredibly generous. He'd never hogged the prime gigs for himself. He would always give me, the, you know, the, the best players in the best repertoire because he, and, and that's how you learned. And I'm, I'm super, super grateful for that. I learned how to make a wind section sound good because of Tim. Mm. Brilliant, brilliant story. Um, it, it also clears up one other question uh, about uh, the jazz job, uh, which I, you know, I'd read about, and I yeah. wondered how you got that. Um, what I'm going to do is go, come back to the Royal Northern College of Music in your current role soon. But well, what I want to know sure. is how do you go from being, you know, you've said yourself, somebody who's largely if not solely conducted your marching band, your drum major, or, or wind bands, uh, and then be offered a head of jazz at the Royal Northern College of Music. How do you go from there to end up conducting new opera, Ensemble 1010, which is a contemporary music group, along the similar lines to the Birmingham Contemporary Music Group or the London Sinfonietta, uh, and, and you know get into conducting orchestras, especially contemporary music, which I know you do quite a lot of and do very well and highly, highly thought of. How, do you, how did you go from wind band to, to that? It's a great question. So the reason I was head of jazz is because the then principal, John Mandwell, uh, who was a great mover and shaker, had booked the RNCM Big Band for the spring of 85 to play at Andre Previn's festival at the, at the South Bank. And I think he suspected that the person who was running the big band didn't know much about it and figured that one of the reasons why he let me take the junior fellowship is as an American, I must have known a lot about jazz uh, and <laughs> and I could surely make sure it wasn't too embarrassing. And in the end, I, you know, I'd done jazz summer schools all through high school. I played in the, at, you know, at high school, I played in all the big bands at university and I'm not really a jazz musician because I'm not a composer uh, or a brilliant improviser, but I can teach it. And and actually, it was great. I had a blast. And it was the 50th anniversary of the RNCM uh, this last year. And, mm. and you know, I've been there for 78% of that time, you know, a lot of years. And so the, I did a little, a little cameo appearance with the big band. It was so fun. And, you know, I'm so lucky that I did that because so much of my what the work I do at the highest level now is is with those sorts of artists. Mm. Anyway, so how did I get into doing things that weren't wind band? Well, first of all, my real passion, and this is why Tim and I got along so well, was was not arrangements of Tchaikovsky symphonies for wind band, but the new and original work for wind band. Yeah, yeah. Who is writing interesting stuff now? And And that's really, I think, why we got along so well when we were having coffee at Northwestern, because I was able to point him in the direction of the, what I thought were the most interesting new commissions that John Painter had done, and what I thought was interesting, and who, you know, who are the serious composers other than Holtz von Williams and, and Schoenberg, who have actually written a piece for Wind, and Granger, of course. And mm. so I really was looking into that, and so my new music antennae were very, very high, and were really, really good. And... I then became involved in trying to create a little bit more contemporary, what you would call music theater, not musical theater, like the eight songs for a Mad King type pieces or mm. down by the Greenwood side of, of Burles. And trying to make, just getting a few of those things off the ground, because I, I loved working with composers. Composers have always been an incredibly important part of my life, working with live composers, whether they're writing for the wind band or whatever. And so my ear to the, I was sort of making these little initiatives myself, trying to make things happen. Um, 
And then Ensemble 1010 was formed, well, 25 years ago, so that must have been 98, because we had our 25th anniversary in February, it was formed by the principal clarinet and the principal cello of Liverpool Philharmonic, co-principal uh, cello, Hilary Browning, and principal clarinet at the time, Nick Cox. Mm. Uh, who felt that the orchestra wasn't playing enough new music at the time, probably looked a bit enviously at, at BCMG, who who were uh, who'd been formed a little bit earlier than that, and and said, we want a bit of this. And I was kind of just, you know, I was in between their two ages. Hill's a bit younger than me. Nick, Nick's about my age. But I, you know, I'd listened widely. I knew a lot of the local composers and international composers. And so we just got together. I was never really formally part of the team, but I would do a lot of that conducting. Yeah. And on the back of that, on the back of that, the orchestra said, oh, we've got a project with some new music. Why don't you conduct a bit of this? And then a crucial thing from my, well, there are two really huge turning points for me. When Edward Grigson became the principal of the RNCM, he, not surprisingly, was very interested in new music. Mm. And he organized a festival of the music of Henza. And then I convinced the, the BBC Philharmonic and the people at the college that, you know, we're doing these new music festivals, new music projects with the what's called what we call the new ensemble, that RNCM version of the London Symphonietta, still called the new ensemble, still plays great. Um, we do these projects. If we if we got the BBC Phil to agree to to be part of these projects, we could do an orchestral concert and lots of chamber music and lots of new music, and really focus in depth on a living composer who might come to Manchester for three or four days, mm. and that became an incredibly successful formula. And I, it then transpired that some of those times I would conduct the BBC Philharmonic, sometimes uh, you know Jimmy McMillan. Wood or Martin Brabens or Mark Heron or whoever, but those we probably did about thirty of those between '99 and just before COVID hit, mm. and those those have become rekindled since COVID, and they were amazing. And we would then repeat a lot of the chamber music programs at the Wigmore Hall, so the students could play there and really something. Or you know, you know, Stravinsky's not here, but if we can bring Christopher Rouse or James McMillan or Bert Whistle or Max. Tansy Davis or Kai Sariaho or Unsuk Chin or whatever in for actual coaching with you, well, you can tell your grandchildren about that. Mm. And a key person for me in there, uh, because he truly changed my life, was Louis Andreessen. Mm. So we did a, one of the first festivals we did was of Louis Andreessen's music. The International Society for Contemporary Music had a, a, a conference in Manchester late 90s, and I did a big piece of Louis, and I just, I'd, I'd, I'd been aware of him, and I've been thinking to myself, and I've been listening to this music thinking, this is perfect for me. It's Ravel, it's Stravinsky, it's jazz, it's kind of vulgar, which I really quite <laughs> yeah, yeah. like. And so... And so we we put on a huge festival of Louis' music. It was one of the first ones we did. And Louis and I got along absolutely brilliantly. And I just loved him. And um, I, I mean, I may as well tell you the, the whole story because you can you can edit out if you don't like it. But so we did a big festival of his music and I did a, a huge piece of his called Dimitri, 100-minute piece. Loved every minute. It loved everything about him. And then about six months later, the South Bank did a big performance festival of his music and crucially it had in it a concert performance of his opera writing to vermeer mm. unbelievable beautiful unbelievably beautiful opera but only a concert performance it was the final concert of the of the event and i went to the concert and went to the reception afterwards 
and a lot of this a lot of the piece there's only th three singers uh and the children and but a lot of it is just orchestral and mm. and after the concert the performance of la passione at the queen elizabeth hall there, there was a reception and at the reception i i talked to janice suskin who i knew well who, who still runs wheezing hawks because they would always want to be sure that we're playing Boozy and Hawks composers as much as possible. And I still love them. They're great. Um, and I said, Janice, there's, you know, this opera, there's a lot of this opera that's just orchestral. Why don't we get, why don't we, why doesn't Louis, because there's no orchestral music by Louis Andreessen, why don't we get Louis, ask him to do an orchestral suite? Mm -hmm. And she kind of looked at me like I was a, a little bit naive, which I was, <laughs> and said, well, well, Louis would never do that, but he really likes you. Why don't you suggest to him that you do it? Yeah. So the, the bit of Louis background is that in the 60s, Louis and Reinbert Deleu and Misha Mengelberg, and this was not known to me, physically occupied the Concertgebouw, threatening to throw tomatoes at the orchestra for their lack of support of Dutch music. Wow. Didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. And so they, and Louis talks about this and, and said, well, we knew that that posh, orchestra didn't want to play our music and we knew those posh people didn't want to hear it but we knew other people did and so at that moment i vowed i would never write for orchestra again and i would only write for people who wanted to play my music hmm. so he founded the group to full harding uh, and became such a seminal figure you know St steve martland graham fitkin all the bang on a can people kate moore i mean you just you know uh, many of the most prominent composers of my generation went to study with him so that's why he wasn't going to do a suite of the opera for himself. So no. anyway, I sent, I sent him a fax. You'll remember what those are, Michael. Yes. Uh, I sent him a fax and I said, uh, you know, Louis, wonderful to get to know you over these past months. I have an idea. What about, what about doing a suite from, from Ryan to Vermeer? So he sent me back the most charming fax that said, you know, it's a really wonderful idea. I'd like to work together with you on it. Uh, there's one there are two stipulations and that they both might sink the project one you cannot simply stitch together the orchestral music because that's not the most important music of the piece you have to reorchestrate some of the music that is sung mm. and the other stipulation and any of you or your listeners who know about louis like stravinsky he his orchestras are very bespoke he doesn't write for standard orchestras right and he said you're not allowed to add any instruments you know, you've got to work with the orchestration as it is, uh, and that might sink it. As it sunk for me, when Stravinsky suggested that I did a suite to the wake to the Rake's Progress, because I couldn't do an aria of Tom Rakewell without a trombone, and there's no trombones in Rake's Progress. <laughs> so, so anyway, so you know, I have that on a fax, which is beautiful. Wow. So yeah. he said, but why don't, but why don't you come over and we'll talk about it? So make a start. So I made a start. And again, anybody who knows anything about Louis' music knows he's a master of structure. And, and so I frankly butchered this opera. You know, I, <laughs> I turned it into something lasting half an hour and, and turned up at his flat, beautiful flat in Kaiserskraft, which only just got emptied two weeks ago uh, on the 1st of July, 2023. So I turned up to this flat really expecting him you know i'd done all the cuts i sent him all the cuts in advance and he said great come over you know come over a cup of tea 10 o'clock whatever morning so hold myself over to causes crotch which is always joyful expecting him to just give me a pat on the shoulder and say you know sunny boy i, I like you a lot but keep your hands off my music <laughs> and he and he said to me 
I love what you've done. You did the beginnings and the ending and cut out all the boring stuff in the middle. It's very Dutch. <laughs> and, and so then over the course of several months, I would go to Amsterdam every now and then and just spend time with Louis. And, and, and there you are with someone with true knowledge, someone who, who can see the forest and then instantly focus in on one leaf. He would say beautiful things to me like, uh, uh, no, cut, cut that, cut this. This is, you know, this is just scene change music. Mm. Or there was one bit that was brilliant orchestral toccata from the second project we did on, uh, on his opera Rosa. And I said, well, I'm not going to touch this, Louis, because it's this fantastic. He said, no, 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 no. We have to look at this. He said, look at this. There are too many four, four bars in a row for a concert audience if they don't have the stage to look at. Very clever. Yeah. Amazing. Mm. And also he would he would say beautiful things to me like, no, 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 Clark, that 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 can't be so that can't be played on that instrument because that instrument would never say those words. <laughs> beautiful, thought provoking. And I learned so much. But the key to that was it he absolutely changed my life because I then, of course, did the world premiere of that suite, which was the deal. Uh, with the residency orchestra, and then I became a person who was uh, sanctioned by Louis. Mm. And so I started working with Asko Schoenberg, that great, great, great Dutch new music group who I still work with a lot. I did another suite. He said, oh, Clark, this is so much fun. Why don't we do another one? So I did a suite to Rosa, which was premiered at the Concertgebouw. And that then meant that I also uh, got introduced to Steve Reich through Asko Schoenberg. And then you become one of the few composers who he really trusts by name. And and that, I mean, it literally, he, I owe everything I've done at the highest level orchestrally to that moment with, when Janice suggested I did that suite with Louis. And that, I tell that story to all of my students because I just say to them, you never know who is going to change your life. And he was a guardian angel for me until he died two years ago. It's one of the the main reasons why I decided to move myself to Rotterdam uh, was to just be in the Netherlands and to keep the Louis Andreessen flag flying as much as I possibly can. Well, that's a, a brilliant, brilliant story. What I'm going to do is link in arranging um, yeah. plus sort of post COVID world for us conductors and, and then, and also yep. you're teaching in Manchester and, and how we're going to link that in is that yep. uh, I've started doing more arranging recently because of a project I did with the WDR Foncast Orchestra in Cologne, where I suggested one of my own arrangements and then suggested writing a new one. Since then, uh, they've asked me to do five other for another project. And I'm actually, I've just finished arranging two numbers for my pro upcoming prom at the end of July, uh, two of the Bollywood songs that we're going to do in that concert. I know that it's added a string to my bow and I love doing it, but it's something I've said to students uh, post-COVID that, you know, don't say no to things like that. Maybe get interested in some compositional, some arranging. You never know where it might lead and you might find out that it's something you really enjoy because uh, conductors have said to me post-COVID, you know, it, it seems to be harder now that, you know, the orchestras are doing less. Uh, how am I going to get myself out there? And I you know, and I've said to them, that's my personal view is 
you know, we've learned skills during COVID, you know, how to build and make a podcast and, and how to cut together soundtracks or how to arrange. Is that something that you, your students ask you at, at um, the RNCM about, you know, graduating and going out into the big world? And you know, I know you've just said, you know, don't turn anything down. You never know where it might lead. But what's your attitude towards that? I couldn't agree more with what you've just said. It, it, um, you simply never know which doors will open and you have to be prepared for all of them. And, and on the other hand, we also are very honest with the students to say, you need to, you need to think about what repertoire you have the strongest ideas about. Uh, and it's not the music that you love most doesn't always love you most. You know, mm. what music do you find you're able to, you're, you're able, your decision-making comes the easiest to, you know, what it's, of course it goes like this. And, you know, I, I think you've done Chloe van Sotterstedt, her decision-making in early romantic repertoire just comes incredibly easy to her. Mm. Alpish finds Schumann and Bruckner incredibly easy. It comes to him. You know, other, other students will find uh, other repertoire comes much, much easier to them. And, and it's important for them. You know, we always tell them, look, your first gigs are not going to be doing a Beethoven cycle because that's the role of the principal <laughs> conductor. Yeah. So you've got to think of something else. And what I would say is interesting is, when I was doing a lot of this work with Louis and doing a lot of work with jazz musicians and pop musicians uh, 20 years ago, I didn't really share it that much with my students because I didn't think they would be very interested. What I now find is the students just love it and they wish they could create more of those opportunities themselves. And they want to, you know, they're dying to be my assistant for Wayne Shorter and Esperanza Spalding or, or a new opera of Oscar Bettison or whatever, because that they actually are super, super interested in that. And they're not all just interested in doing Beethoven 8, which of course, it's kind of ironic in our profession because they're usually judged by how they do that. But, mm. but, and of course they do need to do that reasonably well. But also if you do Steve Reich super well, that's really useful. And you mm. understand how to make that sound good because not everybody who can do Beethoven well can understand all languages. We can't, we like to think we can do everything brilliantly, don't we? Most mm. of us do, but actually the, the truth is, is it's just not the case. It's absolutely true. Uh, I've mentioned Brahms too on this podcast before. It was one of the first pieces I ever wanted to conduct. I conducted it and I never conducted it again for 20 years because I don't think I was ready. And as you said, the music that you, you like doesn't necessarily suit you. The other thing to say is, is that you know, it, yeah. whilst our agents may struggle to find us a place, um, it sounds like you're the sort of conductor like I am who I will happily, as I am in September, conduct Shostakovich 8 with the CBSO. But in the last 12 or 24 months, I've also conducted a mu music of the German hip-hop and rap. I'm doing a, a Bollywood prom. Uh, I've done gaming music. And I will never turn these down because I enjoy all music and I enjoy the challenge. And I enjoy finding out how, well, for instance, the Bollywood stuff, every song... I go to YouTube, I watch where the song is set, I find the English translation of the lyrics, and I try and work out what it means, like I would with an Italian operatic aria. What's the difference? It's just an Indian film song. But if you love music, you will be able to communicate that to any group of, of musicians, and I think that's important. You know, as you said, if if all music, and you're, you're a, like me, I'm interested in everything, fine, great. It's just, it's just slightly harder for our agents to try and find us, uh, you know, specific ways in, I suppose. But other than that, you know, I'll happily accept anything. I think what's also important is sort of side issue that, and you will have experienced it a lot, and I'd, I'd be curious to know how you articulate it. But one of the things that's that's very, very true in, in the work that I do that's 
what you would call not of the traditional European canon. Uh, tango music with Pablo Ziegler. I'd, I'll talk at length if you want to about working with the incredibly important jazz composer Wayne Shorter, who I was incredibly close to. And you know, you know, and I know, and most of your listeners know that a staccato in Mozart is not the same as a staccato in in Brahms, which is not the same as a staccato in Mahler, which is not the same as a staccato in Stravinsky, which is not the same as a staccato in Harrison Burntwistle. Mm. So why should a staccato in Steve Reich or Louis Andreessen or 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 Bollywood films or whatever? And so, you know, I like Wayne's music, for example. He he puts almost no tempo markings, almost no dynamics, and very rarely any articulations or too many articulations as is coffin in in Brahms or in in jazz mm. uh, and and so what what I'll sometimes say to these players is is you know this we need to approach this in the way that we approach Handel and Purcell where there mm. is no where there are no dynamic markings at all mm. this is not music of a written tradition this is music of an oral tradition i remember when i did the, the tango proms with Pablo Ziegler who was who was um Astor Piazzolla's pianist for the last 20 years of his life. Well, that's first-hand knowledge about how to play that, isn't it? Absolutely. And with Britain yeah. Symphonia, Jack, Jackie, Jackie Shave leading, a better leader you could not imagine. And, you know, we're playing these rhythms, great, you know, but they don't sound anything like the way that they play them. You know, mm. they're just, just quavers and semi-quavers. But, you know, and I remember just discussing that. I think, so, okay, then, gentlemen, we're not playing this wrongly, but it doesn't sound anything like them. Yeah. So... We we need you know we need to use our ears. We need to play like chamber musicians. The pencil is not going to help us in this mm. in this scenario. We need to just listen how they play these rhythms, you know. And 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 then then it just you could just feel the the room just get much more open actually. Mm. Mm. And so I've used that 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 little trick a lot when working with. Let's say you've got the privilege of having John Patitucci in the room for you basses play like this you know all these notes are not the same i know mm. it it might say fortissimo at the start of a of a piece of john adams but you know those funky bass players don't play every note super loud it's, they're full of inflection and sometimes the more information you put on the page the worse it sounds mm. you just have to go with your instinct and you know as you would say at a very basic level rise and fall with the shape of the line in a in a bit of handle, you know, that's a good starting place. Right. It reminds me because I've spent this morning going through the songs uh, for the, the prom that's upcoming. And the amount of times I wrote the word attack over violin lines, and that's down to the way that the, it was played. As you just said, we, you know, it would be very easy to see semi-gravers and um, millions of notes running up and down for the violin section and to play them like Richard Strauss or something. There is a, a story I've been told that the red light would never go on for these songs unless there were 200 musicians in the room. So you can imagine how many of them were violinists. And that's why yeah. when you hear these songs, it's all about attack. You have to, you know, so even though we've only got 30, they've got to play it like their life depends on it and go for it. And, you know, hang the consequences if it's if it starts with a, a crash or the bow hitting the string. That's how we get the sound. And, so, yeah, it's... It's how different ensembles fascinate me. So yeah, I've done some tango and I've been to Argentina and listening to it, the way they play rhythm and yeah, it's it's endlessly fascinating. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing.
I don't know how many times I met. I know I sent you an email with the full list of everybody I've interviewed, and maybe you can tell me how many times I've interviewed somebody who's gone through your class with Mark Heron, who I have also interviewed. <laughs> and often they will say Mark and Clark or Clark and Mark. And, you know, let's face it, it trips off the tongue. How much do you, the pair of you, get together and formulate your plans? Are you a are you a ham and egg type partnership teaching wise? I mean, do do you have a different, much different style to Mark, or do you really work closely hand in glove to, uh, during the year and with the students over the co the course of their course? How does your relationship work? I hope Mark would say we trust each other totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's very interesting in auditions. <clears throat> in auditions, we very very rarely disagree. And when we do, we we give that a you know we really tease that one out because yeah. we're you know there'd be few pairs of conductors who watch more videos and sat through more auditions. And what is very interesting is actually post COVID and since I've become uh, more part time, he's 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 is so wonderful when he took over the department. I, I knew he would do a better job than me, and he has done exactly that. It's just gone from strength to strength. He's so brilliant. But we'll, you know, we'll we'll team teach a lot, so we'll be there together a lot of the time, and and I'll often say, well, Mark is about to say this to you, <laughs> or he would say, Clark <laughs> is going to say this, you know, what Clark yeah. is, and we'll look at each other and say, you're about to say this, I know. So, so he, you know, I, he, I think we both have uh, our, our our kind of things that we pick out first. What he is absolutely much better at than me is the technical side of it. He he can look at some, look at people, even people who are very advanced and just work out a couple little technical things to change. And, 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 and I'm just, how do you see that? You know, God, God, it's, how do you see that? It's amazing. He's, he's incredibly good at that. And of course I can do a bit of that, but he's just much better at that than me. And I suppose I tend to, see i i'm always striving very very hard for them to show me their personality mm. to show me what they have what they're trying to say about this piece i get very easily bored um in the classes uh and i think that's actually a good thing yeah you know i said i said you know i'm bored you know you're, you're not you're not telling me anything i don't know about this piece you know what are you and so i i think that he, he knows i often come at it from that angle but i i I think we make just a, a really, really good team where I also think what helps us both, and that would be true of your teaching, is that we're still pretty active. Yes. You know? the, the students like the fact that I can come back and say to them what I did in Tokyo and how it went. And it was tough and we had no time, but the orchestra was brilliant. And mm. and and so thank God we knew this. You know, I knew the repertoire or whatever. They found this difficult or you know, it, it's they really, really appreciate the fact that we're still there making concerts happen for people to listen to at a, at a pretty reasonable level. Um, but no, we get along super, super well. And he also, his, I, I suppose the, the fundamental thing that we both learned from learning from Tim Rennish is we do not try to make anybody in our image. Yes. We have, we have, we try to make sure that they are conducting the way that works for them. If there are things that don't work, we try to get them to figure it out for themselves. Mm. Uh, we don't demonstrate a lot. I demonstrated maybe a couple times last year, but I don't demonstrate a lot because I say, what I read from you is you're showing this. 
you know, I don't think that's what you want to be showing. So mm. you've got to, because, because ultimately we need them to be able to teach themselves, don't we? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Because they're with us for a short amount of time. And, you know, I, as I hope some of the former students who are doing well have attested to, they'll phone us up every now and then and say, help, you know, Clark, often with a modern score, they'll show me a pick score page and say, what does this mean? Mm. Uh, you ever seen anything like this or what, which I love and it's love to be in touch with them. And, and they're, I, I really do, but we don't want them phoning us up all the time because they, they can't figure it out themselves. That would be, we've been poor parents in that regard. Mm. Anyway. So we try to always get them to the point where they can hopefully problem solve because that's fundamentally what you're teaching them, is it? Problem solving and time management is what it's about. And so we're pretty hot on both of those. Absolutely. Uh, dead right. I used to, I, when I taught the violin for 10 years at the Birmingham Conservatoire, I would make sure, it was my prime goal was to make sure that they could teach themselves. If they got a job in a quartet or in an orchestra, they're going to go through a phase when they're going to have a dodgy shoulder or they're going to, they might yeah. even struggle with the bow shakes. Why are you struggling with, you know, that it works because of this physics and, and yeah, yeah. You, they've got, they can't be ringing you up five years later. Or I mean, if they had, it wouldn't have mattered, but you know, you're absolutely and I, right. And I think another thing that, that has been a part of that course, which, which again, we learned from Tim is, if we have somebody who's a, a very, very good violinist, first thing we put them in front of is a wind orchestra mm. or a wind octet. You know, tune that. <laughs> Just yeah. why, work out how to balance that. You know, because you've never... And, and we try to, to address what we perceive as, as their... Not only physical weaknesses, or, but actually their knowledge gaps. Mm. You know, so... If somebody's a composer, they don't necessarily need to do all the new music projects. We'll we'll give them a bit of Baroque stuff. So, or we just try to try to get them in a, in as wide, just expand them on all fronts, uh, hoping that they can find a technique that works in in any situation. Hmm. Now, I did ask Mark the eleventh question that you don't know is coming, uh, but frankly, I can't remember his answer, and I'm very interested in yours because I suspect it will be different. The eleventh question is about score study. Um, and it, basically, how do you go about it? Do you sit at the piano with your new scores? Um, do you start with a big overall picture and then go focus in, in and in and in on the details? Do you listen to it with your inner ear? And for the geeks, and I am one of those geeks, and I know there are many young conductors who listen to this, are you a scribbler inner? Are you a red, blue, black, highlighter pens, marker upper? Or do you like to keep your scores very clean and tidy? Great question. Uh, I am a poor pianist. In fact, this fact, my mother was a was a piano teacher. Um, so I and I don't do colors anymore, but I I write it in pencil a lot. Uh, and interestingly, <laughs> I find that if I write in pencil in a kind of not particularly neat way, it sticks out from the page a bit better than <laughs> if, that it's if it's incredibly kind of if it looks like a bar line, I might mistake it. You know, if it's really trumpets here looking a bit crooked you know <clears throat> but so i am a person who as you rightly said i do a lot of new music and and i sit at a table basically and will slowly mark up the score initially mm. so so that i'll try to work out what sort of language it is how long it really is what i think what i perceive are going to be the problems is it basically tonal is it basically metric is it basically are there is there a lot of stuff i can hear quite easily in my inner ear or is this stuff that that i i actually need to sit at a piano and work out mm. and 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 so through the through 
uh, a fair old bit of time at a at a desk uh, I'll where I've marked it up fairly thoroughly <clears throat> go through it two or three times to be sure I'm not missing an incredibly important you know entrance in a double base you know making sure I'm looking down the, the what I would describe as the food chain which not everybody in term, <laughs> not everybody in the lower part of the food chain really appreciates <laughs> but and and then I, then I will sit at a piano I will sit at a piano and if it's if it's not something that's very tonal I'll uh, I do, you know I don't have perfect pitch and I don't have a photographic memory and so I, I will play these slowly get a hang of a harmonic language um if it is something very tonal I'll also sit at the piano to see uh, if I'm hearing it accurately mm. so I'll I'll start off I'll start off in a certain key whatever key that happens to be and I'll think I'm hearing it and then you know three or four pages in I'll say is that still an A flat to myself mm. just to be sure that I'm that I'm not I've not uh, lost it and you know oftentimes I do I'm, I don't I don't have perfect pitch but my my ears okay um, and so that is that is how I learn them, and I absolutely do mark them up, and especially, you know, you appreciate you get to a certain age, and I'm 61. Um, I need to mark in in big symbols the metric changes. I can't I can't read I can't tell the difference between three four and five four if it's you know especially a lot of scores where the there's more space between the staves than there is stave and yeah. I, I just can't read it and and you know i can't afford to make those mistakes that you know the players expect me to be right and and they need to rely on me like making a mistake once is fine you make it twice you need to that's just not acceptable so mm. oh i'm the same i do use red for my uh, meter changes um mm. but yeah always make sure that they're they're very visible um because yeah. you know we, it sounds like we've both now gone past the stage where our eyesight is 2020 um uh, I, I'll steer a world clear of the pun of it being ten ten, but you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, very good. Um, I, tell you, yeah. I tell you, just talking talking about age in another thing that really pisses me off. I don't know if this is true for you. That if I try, I try always to memorize, you know, five or eight bars of things in a new piece that's particularly treacherous for the orchestra, yes. so that I can be really, really heads up for them. Really, really difficult corners. But I, I find that. I can't memorize larger chunks than that now that I'm older, but I can remember as if they were yesterday, the pieces I learned in my twenties. Mm. And that really pisses me off. You know, the <laughs> students will come back to me with, you know, wind band piece, you know, famous one, Gallimoffrey of Guy Wolfenden, who you probably knew. Yeah. And, you know, I could still comfortably conduct that from memory, even though I haven't conducted it for probably 25 years. And that's so annoying. Mm. So young conductors, if you're memorizing stuff, make sure it's going to be useful to you in another 20 years. You know? <laughs> I conducted something yesterday in the study. I was uh, I, I, I can't remember what it was, but it was something which was fairly complicated. And I just felt my, it was on in the background. I felt myself conducting the beat patterns. And so the muscle memory was still there, but I'm not sure wow. that the, the, the head memory and the visual memory is still there, but that muscle memory was definitely there. I could feel my hands moving. I thought, oh my God, I've still got it. I remember it. It'd been ages since I conducted it, <laughs> but I couldn't remember seeing the score. It was like that, you know? So, well, uh, what it proves is that you, like virtually everybody who's I've interviewed on this podcast, put the hard yards in. You know, especially if, like me and you, we don't have perfect pitch. Um, we can't necessarily hear all of that or a photographic memory. It's, you just have to put the hard yards in. If that means going down and playing on the piano briefly to work out some harmonies or to figure out how atonal or whether that leap works or whatever it is, you just do it. 
And if and it, well, as as you, yeah. as you rightly know, good players will very quickly work out whether you know what the hell is going on. Absolutely, you haven't done your homework; and, they'll and, sniff that out very quickly. And and that's what motivates you: the fear of being found out as being a total charlatan. You yeah. know, yeah. And I have that fear every time I, I'm about to get on an airplane. You know, <laughs> absolutely so. true. At this point, Clark and I discuss the links between teaching, conducting, and both business coaching and sports science. He also spoke about his experiences working with the American jazz composer Wayne Shorter. I've made this into a short bonus mini-episode for subscribers to my Patreon page. You can subscribe to my Patreon page for as little as £5 a month. You can also pay annually and get a 10% discount, and if you're a student, feel free to contact me and I will raise that discount further for you. Not only will you have access to all of the previous mini-episodes attached to this podcast, you can listen to around 35 hours of interviews with prominent musicians, managers, agents and soloists. You can read my very popular tour diaries that I write when I go and guest conduct abroad, as well as articles about conducting and conductors. Just head to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Clark Rundell. Clark, it's time for the inevitable, the 10 questions at the end of every episode. And as always, I start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Love is an itching one. Um, A musical answer would be any first chord of a piece by Louis Anderson, because it's so so recognisable. But I'm a great, as you'll hear in, in some of the later answers, great lover of the of the mountains and the sort of sound of the wind around a remote lake in the Sawtooth Mountains, something like that. It's just, I just, I feel it on my skin. It replenishes my soul. It's wonderful. Mm, mm. Sounds wonderful. Hate, hate is easy. Uh, the sound that just goes straight to the core of me, goes back to my days when I used to guest conduct as a as a much younger conductor, a lot of school and student wind bands. And the sound of the very breathy, out-of-tune flute goes straight to my core. I just, <laughs> I get almost dizzy and pass out. <laughs> oh, that's a, I've had many nature-type answers for love. I've not had that for hate uh, at all. Uh, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant answer. <laughs> oh, that's gone. That's gone into my top five. That's wonderful because it's a sound I can hear as well, and it would make me feel, feel <laughs> upset. Oh, oh my god! <laughs> and there's no way, you know, it's our job to make it sound better. You're never going to make that sound better. You know, it's just oh my god, it's awful. <laughs> Number three, if you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Well, I'm a, I'm a lover of hiking. I, I, I hike the hills and I just get, get me into nature. Get me, get me a nice mountain. You know, I don't mind up. <laughs> I'm more scared going down. So, mm. you know, some, something that's steep. We did a lot of wilderness trekking with the kids when we were young, uh, when, when, when my kids were young and my, my late, late wife was, was with us and, you know, three, four-day wilderness treks in the in the Sierra Nevadas, Yosemite, Glacier National Park, and the Rockies. Oh, just anything that gets me close to that is great. Brilliant. I have to ask, as somebody who lives, divides your time between uh, Rochester in Kent, which I know very, very well, and Rotterdam, um, 
if you're nowhere near any mountains, which neither of those places are, <laughs> what, what do you do then? <laughs> no, I, I also love cycling. Right. So okay. I'll go. I'll take myself on a big old bike ride yeah. and have a and and it's great. You know, the bike rides where we are in Rotterdam are just endlessly beautiful and yeah. uh, it's glorious. Brilliant. Number four. Well, you're right. They're very flat. Yeah, they are. Yes, indeed. Number four. Is always a nice one. Who would be your favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? Uh, no question, Bernstein. Mm. No question, Bernstein. He was, <clears throat> I think if you were growing, growing up in the 60s in the States, he was uh, such an inspirational figure on the television, just making us think, making us think that classical music was cool, making, making us think that it was interesting. And I still, you know, if I've got to teach the students some classic repertoire, I will still often put on a recording of Bernstein, not because it's definitive, just because he finds things that other people don't find. Mm. And, and to find things that other people don't find is interesting. You can then choose to ignore it, but I never knew that was there. And that's interesting. Mm. You know, Absolutely. Just, just it opens your mind and opens your thinking. So mm. no question about that. Well, number five is a slightly harder question. Historically, some people have struggled with it. But I wonder whether your choice of favourite current conductor or conductors are people or is a person who also finds the interesting. Well, I, I just have to go for, for people I, I, I admire. I admire Simon enormously. His personal skills are incredible. Watching him rehearse, which I've not done as much as you, uh, is, is wonderful. But also, I'm incredibly grateful for what I've learned from Sir Mark Elder. Mm. watching him rehearse the insight that he has had i think you know if tim taught me how to make a wind section sound good mark taught me how to make an orchestra sound good his his understanding of how to make you know he's a bassoonist how to make the strings sound good he, the way he approaches a score i i i, I he, he has to be I, i'm so 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 grateful to him and i admire him just everything he does and everything stands for watching him coach Italian opera, watching him co coach Rossini, which I thought was unmitigated garbage until I saw him coach it. <laughs> and then I just like, oh my God. You know, it's, it, he's, I, I, I'm so full of admiration for him. He was principal guest at Birmingham when I joined and mm. right near the end. So, I mean, he came and conducted Elgar, he came and conducted Shostakovich, he came and conducted all sorts of stuff. Right near the end of that time, he did a concert performance of Il Tabaro. Puccini, oh. one-act opera, part of Il Tritico, all of a sudden he went up in my estimations a million percent because I saw somebody put this thing together with the utmost skill, with the utmost care. With the, I mean, it was incredible. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I'd seen him conducting symphonic stuff. In, and at the time, Rattle was the boss. So, I, you know, you're always going to compare Rattle against Elder. And for me, you know, I, then he came and did that. And then I went, oh, right, now I get it. You know, uh, and I can imagine working with him on such a close basis as you do. RNCM and the Halle have, you know, a great relationship. Just, yeah, amazing. I'm sure you I'm sure you talked to Mark about, you know, that, that conducted Garfab and some of the some of the sessions we recorded of Sir Mark going through page by page of Enigma variations. You know, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. gold dust. Number six, what is the hardest work you've ever conducted? I'm going I'm I'm to list three of them for various reasons. I've had the great privilege of conducting the Bernstein Mass a lot. Mm. And the Bernstein Mass is a complicated, long work. It's nearly two hours without a break. But what's complicated about it is because it's so multifaceted, it has a jazz band and a jazz choir and a children's choir and a symphonic choir 
and two organs and and the strings don't play for like a third of it and and managing the rehearsal time is incredibly difficult trying to work out which of these constituent parts is going to be the most needy in rehearsal and in concert um it's it's a it's a fiercely complicated work i think it's one of the it's unbelievably wonderful incredibly moving <clears throat> anybody who has a chance to go see it should go and see it because it doesn't come often up very often for all of those reasons and and that's it's 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 tough but so so satisfying mm. number two is for an emotional one um the expecto resurrection of messia is a work i've done a lot um it is very hard to conduct technically. it is and, yeah <laughs> uh, and and I, I don't really have a problem with that i like I, that doesn't bother me but the first time i did a tour of it my father then was was just after my father died and the second time i did a tour of it was okay then the third time my wife is terminally diagnosed and i just and it's incredibly deep and difficult piece about death and i cannot conduct the end of it without just I have to repress that so much. I have mm. to just come on back. You're here to do a job. Just get through to the end because it just makes me think about those people I love so much. Mm. Mm. And the third piece that was, it's just probably recently in my mind, was was the wonderful opera of Wayne Shorter's with the libretto by Esperanza Spalding, who's one of the great geniuses I've ever had the privilege to meet, and which we did uh, on tour. And a lot of it... I, I had to help uh, thin the orchestration of it, which was, you know, my job. I subscribed to that. Um, but also the piece is also very difficult because of the constituent parts. It has a jazz trio. It has a jazz singer. It has very uh, straightforward opera singers. The music is really, really, really hard. And it is very, Wayne is one of the most original thinkers of the last hundred years. He's, it's, you know, People who know Wayne Shorter want to touch me or know who he is want to touch me because I was close to him and other people, it won't mean anything to them. Listen to some Wayne Shorter. It's unbelievable. Mm. But the symphonic stuff has not been recorded. No orchestra has played very much of it. So you're teaching an, a, an operatic language, an opera that, again, a bit like the Bernstein, lasts nearly two hours without a break. You're having to teach this every week to an orchestra from scratch who don't speak the language at all. Mm -hmm. And that was really, really, really tough. We were doing a tour. We did Boston, the Kennedy Center, San Francisco and L.A. And, you know, of course, all the singers are like, oh, good to see you again. You know, what did you do last week when we we're off? And I'm starting from below zero, yeah. you know, with really good players, but just who have no points of reference for this language. And and that, you know, we always I think I hope, you know, with all my heart, I tried to make it really, really great every single time. But it, you could just see you know, with these really fine players saying, wow, this is such good music, but I've never played anything like it. I don't really know how to orientate myself in the sound world and and so that was that will was and we will continue hopefully we've got some performances lined up for not in next year or the year after be a big challenge and it's also physically hard opera is hard and there's not there's not a two bars of it that play itself you have mm. to really manufacture it all it's it's a it's a big 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 challenge joyful wonderful fabulous well so, like all conducting it it's so joyful. well yeah indeed so for the listener who, who, just to make this plain, you and the singers go from city to city, and maybe the staging, go from city to city touring this opera. But 
when you get to that city, it's the city's orchestra that you, that are playing it. So every week, or for if it's three or four performances, or maybe six in Boston, and then you go to New York, and then you've got a different orchestra in New York, and then you've got a different orchestra in Atlanta, you've got a different orchestra in Chicago. That's why that's tough. That and especially with something as you've just said, in an idiom or in a language that the orchestra is not used to speaking in, they can speak Bruckner, they can speak Mahler, they can speak anything but something like Wayne Shorter's music is something that they will have not encountered and so every start of the first rehearsal you go back to square one it's like starting a youth orchestra in September every year you know you lose you know three quarters of them at the end of the year and then you get another new lot of three quarters come in and you've got to start again absolutely you can build on nothing um oh that's tough I could I I couldn't have described it better Michael it it, it, it was tough and and I had to the first after the first time it happened, I, I knew that it was happening, you know, because, of yeah. course, you have the the incredibly fine sound of the final performance, you know, in your ear. And then you come into this rehearsal hall and you think, oh, oh God, what, what happened to that? Yeah. And, oh, oh God. God. Yeah. Yeah. So that it it, it was tough. I, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't I won't lie about that. But I, I would I've traded every any second for it because. You know, I'm I'm in a room with great musicians playing unbelievably fantastic music. Yeah. You know, what a what a privilege. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. Number seven. When when you travel abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? You know, I'm super boring. I don't have anything fun for that. It's so bad. <laughs> I suppose I mean I'm an as I'm an asthmatic, so I have to make sure I've got all my medicine. I'm incredibly neurotic about that. Um but I suppose the, the thing I always have is something I'm, I'm orchestrating. Yeah. So I'll always have something that's not some music that's not related to what I'm doing. Because if it's a program I know pretty well, I'm finishing, let's say you're in Norway, you finish at two o'clock. Yeah. Catch an art gallery. And then I'll, I'll just go back to the hotel room and, and, and do a bit of orchestration. If it's not orchestration, I, I need a piano for. So maybe that's unusual. A lot of people, I'm sure of our colleagues bring next week's scores to this week's, <laughs> to this week's project, but. It's really that I don't have anything fun. I bring my gym clothes. I'm a I'm a kind of fit guy, so I'll take my try to go for a run or go to the gym wherever I am. But that's probably not too not exactly thrilling. It certainly doesn't smell very good. <laughs> well, gym stuff's a common answer, like running shoes. But I'm not sure anybody, you know, I maybe somebody way back in the dim and distant talked about taking a mini keyboard with them so they could input stuff onto their computer. Yeah. I'm assuming yeah. when you're talking about doing arranging. You are like me. You use some sort of software on your computer. Yeah. I, I use yeah. Sibelius, but there's also yeah. Dorico and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah I've, yeah, I've always got something on the go here, whether it's a personal arrangement or something I've been asked to arrange. You know that that's it's something sure. that, that that yeah. It, it, in downtime, it's nice to switch the brain off. And rarely have I been in that situation, yeah. as you said, where I've got next week's scores in the bag and I'm going from one place to another. Yeah. That really happens. But yeah, it, it's totally. a good answer. Yeah. It's a good answer. Number eight. What's the one thing you would change about being a conductor? The one thing I would change about our profession mm. and being a conductor like me is that every new piece should be played at least five times. Uh, I think, you know, the fact that we work hard and play this, there's in, as many brilliantly talented composers now as there were in Mozart's time or Haydn's time or Brahms's time or Stravinsky's time. Incredible talent incredible music being made needs to get out there and get heard there's a huge audience out there for music that is not the emperor concerto music that is written in our lifetime and it just 
all of it needs to be played more because the more we play it, the better it gets and the more languages we learn to speak. And mm -hmm. that is the one thing I would change because, you know, we work like a dog to play these, especially the new music really, really well. People say, oh, that was really great. And you just want to share that with people. You know, you mm -hmm. want more people to be able to hear it. Absolutely so agree. Uh, and I think it's a shame to a degree, though I suppose it's part of what we do. You know, I, I feel with composers, and I know you you know an awful lot more composers than I do, but with composers whose music I've given premieres to, I will try and champion it. Um, but they yeah. should they have to rely on a champion to do that? Um, you know, I, I've also conducted pieces that I know, for instance, one of them was, was I was asked to conduct specifically for the reason that it had been recorded once, been played once, and then never played again for 10 years. And it was in a group of pieces the BBC yeah. wanted to hear again after 10 years. And it was, you know, it's a shame. Quite. It's an absolute shame. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, it's the, 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 wor the world needs less Beethoven and Brahms, not that they're not great, but it needs more of, of the music of our lifetime. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, well, it's a food thing, isn't it? You know, some people always go to the, their favorite restaurant and always order the same thing. Um, whereas so other people like to go to different restaurants and try new stuff out. Um, you yeah. know, it, it's, it, uh, we should try, try and encourage more people to go, you know, go, go to more restaurants, uh, musically, so to speak. I wonder whether restaurants well features in question nine, who, who knows what profession <laughs> other than your own would you like to attempt? I would love to be a sort of wilderness guide. Mm. You know, I'd love to be a wilderness guide in 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 extreme places. I'd love to have the skills to sort of survive. You know, to take people really out into into you know the Alps or out into the into the hills, into deep deep Rockies, and and be skilled enough to know that I could get people in and out of there safely and just see the places that you can only get to on foot. I'd be a, I'd be an outdoor guide for sure. And spending every moment of your time outdoors and that yeah exactly. Earning yeah. your earning your money whilst doing something you love. Well, which is sort of we, what we do already, but it's a different thing you love. Yeah, yeah. I oh, what we do. What I I mean, I absolutely do what I love. It's so I'll you know. Why would you ever retire? It's so fun. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Absolutely no question. <laughs> <laughs> I would have a very fine steak. Yeah, and I am anybody who knows me knows I'm a big wine lover and have quite a reasonable wine cellar, mm. and and in fact the the book of wine, which was a wedding present, we got we got a lot of wine when my late wife and I got married, and I should add I'm now super super happily remarried to uh, and have, have uh, to the great composer Tansy Davis. We're married, and I'm so so lucky to have her in my life. But my beautiful late wife Kathy, who's the mother of my kids, when we got married. We asked people just to give us wine. Oh, brilliant. So we started Married Life uh, with a big collection of wine because it was pre-internet. And and over the years, some great musicians have written music in this book. John Dankworth has written music in the book. Uh, Magnus Lindbergh, Detlef Glanert, Jimmy McMillan, some people actually writing little bits of music in. So I would have absolutely a steak and a really fine Chateauneuf, probably Roger Sabon or or uh, via telegraph well easy <laughs> i i like it when people give nice easy straightforward absolute answers a steak i think was my answer way back in episode 50 and even in the trailer episode one so it, i never changed that answer 
And as far as red wine is concerned, my estate was in Argentina, so I went for a Malbec. But, you know, a Chateau wow. Neuf would absolutely go down very well indeed. <laughs> I'm not comp- not complaining at all. Um, <laughs> and as for going down well and not complaining, I've got, had nothing to complain about for the last hour or so chatting to you, Clark. It's been utterly brilliant. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And I hope someday soon, over a glass of something red or bubbly, we can sit down and chat in person and talk more about what we do and what we love. Thank you, Clark. Mike, that was a real pleasure. I didn't really know what to expect because, uh, as I said earlier in the podcast, I'd, I'd not listened to them. I know a few people who've who've had the pleasure of being on the on the other end of these great questions, and just great to talk to somebody who 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 really knows. And and hopefully, people find it interesting. Thank you. A Mic on the Podium is devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Over the coming few days, you will receive a short episode outlining the future of the podcast over the next month or so. Don't worry if you're an avid listener, I am not stopping, but just taking a little break. I'll give you more details in that short extra episode, but until then, bye-bye. <laughs>